I demanded the immediate emancipation of all Africans in the colonies. Didn't, of course, happen. Pity. Oh, America, what was it you did not understand about slavery? Could we not have saved some suffering for our United States? Or as someone would come to say, what would have happened when Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, if one of his slaves had stood up and said, me too? <laughs> I would not live to see the end of this ungodly practice. That was uh, Anton Karras from The uh, Third Man, and um, that was uh, Ian Ruskin uh, talking about slavery as Tom Paine in the movie on Tom Paine. You can find it on the internet. Just search. Uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous movie. By the way, I'm Randy Critical. Randy Critical Live on the Fly um, with Kelly Lane in uh, North Carolina, and this is the... Um, finale of our four-part series on uh, the revolutionary journalist and whistleblower Thomas Paine, who uh, kind of uh, defected from uh, England in 1774, and he became the inspiration behind an incomplete revolution, and of course he was very uh, unhappy with uh, how uh, uh, things got contorted uh, and um, Payne is the true hero because he's a whistleblower too. We talked about that in uh, episode two. All four are on our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com, and you can go to Live on the Fly uh, YouTube channel. Uh, after this, we will continue our um, more closely uh, focused on the upcoming Assange. Uh, hearing in September. Uh, but this reason why we did this is because he was like Julian Assange, that is Tom Paine. I mean, the guy was a maverick, uh, you know, revolutionary journalist uh, and, and a whistleblower. And he was persecuted. He was in jail many times. Uh, and he got smeared, same way Assange got smeared. Uh, and uh, his reputation began to uh, blossom again, as we will uh, hear from uh, our special guest on this four-part series, and that is Harvey Kay, the professor at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. Great guy. He wrote a book called uh, Assange, not Assange, but, you know, Freudian slip. Um, Thomas Paine, The Promise of America. It's a great book, and you'll know how to get it at the end of this uh, program. It'll tell you how you can get it. And I really, really strongly urge that you get this book. It really uh, had a profound impact on my view on Paine, and, uh, which I, I already liked. I already liked Paine, but I didn't realize uh, what a tremendous uh, individual he was. Maybe like the greatest. Put him up there with John Brown, William Kutzler, uh, some of the uh, great abolitionists, Martin Luther King. This guy was a 
definite transformative figure. All right, uh, we're gonna take a, a quick uh, music uh, break here. And um, I believe this is the Stone Hens uh, playing a wonderful version of uh, Tom Paine's Bones. We'll be right back. I went out late one night By river of discontent I ran straight into old Tom Paine Running down the road he went He said I can't stop right now, child King George is after me And he'd have a rope around my throat Hang me from the liberty tree Oh, I'd dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones He said I only talked about freedom Said I preached revolution And let me speak in my defense Well I did wherever I went Was a talk a lot of common sense Oh I Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones that was Tom Paine's Bones. You've heard about nine versions of it. Uh, this time we're going to ask Professor K, uh, the genesis of Tom Paine's Bones. I forgot to do it the last time. Uh, this is Randy Pettico, Randy Pettico, Live on the Fly. And uh, this is our uh, finale, our fourth interview with uh, Professor Harvey K at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, uh, whose book, really inspired me and many others, uh, as did the subject of the book. And the name of the book is Tom Paine, Thomas Paine, Promise of America. And he joins us once again. And why don't you just tell us quickly the genesis of that tune, Tom Paine's Bones. Okay, so here's the thing. When, uh, when Paine died, he had hoped to be buried in a Quaker cemetery in New York City. But the Quakers were, they just wouldn't have him. So he was buried on, on his cottage grounds up in New Rochelle, New York. And he was there, he was clearly not among friends, you might say, because the, the area that he was buried in, that New Rochelle, was actually the, the, the city, the town that refused to allow him to vote. So anyhow, so it was not exactly uh, a, a big thing to have Thomas Paine buried in the town. Well, there was a man named William Cobbett, an Englishman. And Cobbett had come to uh, the United States in the 1790s. And he had come as a, as a conservative, basically. And he was constantly haranguing uh, the likes, even though Paine was back in Europe, he was haranguing the likes of the, those who supported Thomas Paine. He attacked that what were known as the Democratic Republicans. And so he was basically a pain in the ass kind of guy to people who were what we would think of as fairly progressive. And then he went back to England. And while he was back in England, he realized just how awful England was and had America might actually be the, the better place. And it, 
and he had decided to come back again to America. And when he was on his return to America, before he once again returned to England, he decided it was time to really honor Thomas Paine, that when he had been writing in the 1790s and attacking Thomas Paine, and I think he wrote under the pseudonym Peter Porcupine, I believe, he, um, he actually arranged to dig up, and he did dig up Thomas Paine's coffin from New Rochelle, and he had it uh, carriaged, uh, you know, wagon loaded down to uh, New York Harbor and then placed on a boat and sent off with him on board to England. And I used to imagine that they lost the bones. I was convinced they had lost the bones, but they had, but apparently it, the bones did make their way back to England. And Cobbett had plans to raise subscription to build a real memorial or monument to Thomas Paine somewhere near Manchester, which is where Cobbett was living, I believe. And, Cobbett died before he could complete the project, and apparently his son had the coffin placed in a barn somewhere in the Manchester area, and a barn fire, that, this is the story, a barn fire occurred so that Payne's bones no longer existed. So the question of Thomas Payne's bones is, is kind of a reference to the fact that we don't know where the bones are. Now, two things I'll say. One, there was a woman in Australia who claimed to have Thomas Paine's skull, for what it's worth. Okay, and I did meet her, and frankly, I really wasn't impressed. I thought she was an idiot. Um, but nevertheless, that was her claim, and she really worked on, that, on making that uh, sort of a, a relic, though she was no big fan of Thomas Paine that I could tell. It was more like she claimed this in order to make some money off of it. More importantly, I used to try to imagine that Payne had fallen off, Payne's coffin had sort of slid off the ship, maybe it was tied down on, on deck, and it slid off into the Atlantic, and it seemed an appropriate place to imagine that Payne was now uh, lying somewhere, laying somewhere, uh, mid-Atlantic, right? In between America, whose revolution he had launched, uh, but it, it, not, you know, in between America and England, he had been a major figure in launching the British democratic and labor movement. And of course, France, where he had served as a revolutionary figure in the revolution that ensued from 1789. So anyhow, all the song about Tom Paine's bones refers to, although it sounds as if they're gonna dance on them, in fact, you know, not there. There you go. Wow. Yeah, then there was a. By the way, there's a guy I can't remember his name. I I could, if anybody wants, just type in. My, they might type in something like Tom Paine's bones at Amazon or one, or Barnes and Noble, and you might be able to find out. There was a book that came out not long after my book, not a book about Thomas Paine himself, but a book about um, Thomas Paine's bones and all the various people around the world who who laid claim to having actually recovered them. And he travels to various places in search of Thomas Paine's bones. That may even be the title, The Search for Thomas Paine's Bones. So, so when I return back to New York City and I go through New Rochelle, I'm not going to find any monument. Well, actually, yes. No, no. In fact, you will. Because two things. First of all, his cottage is still there as Thomas Paine's cottage. And the other thing is, is that in 18, I think it's 1833, four, five, right in there, um, 
there was a journalist, uh, Gilbert Vale, I think was his name, yes, who launched a project to raise money to put up a monument to Thomas Paine in New Rochelle, and it succeeded. And the way he did it is, he knew rich people wouldn't give him money, but he launched it among the working class communities of the New York area. And people gave the smallest amounts of money, but they all gave money. I mean, everybody was very keen on remembering Thomas Paine and memorializing, memorializing him. So actually very, very close along the main road through New Rochelle, there is actually sort of a column with a bust of Thomas Paine on top of it. So you will indeed find a, uh, a Thomas Paine Memorial there. I'll, I'll also point out that Iona College, which is, you know, I guess, an old Catholic college in New Rochelle, they, they've established what they call a Thomas Paine Study Center. And, uh, you know, so it's not that he's forgotten in New Rochelle. Oh, and by the way, in 1945, I think it was, the city of New Rochelle apologized and restored Paine's right to vote. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Can you hear the lightning here? By the way, folks, I'm in Kingston and Kelly Lane, our engineers in North Carolina and our good professor, RVK is in Wisconsin where in Green Bay, uh, where he is a part owner of the Green Bay Packers along with 100,000 other people, right? Well, you know what, there, there, there was a, there was a, a well-known New York Times sports writer who said, socialism is alive and well in Green Bay, Wisconsin, because the only major sports franchise in, in the United States owned by the fans are the Green Bay Packers. It's just amazing. Uh, so Harvey, uh, well, that's a great story about Tom Paine's bones. And now people know why I played it so many times. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, past rights of man and going into uh, agrarian reform and the agrarian justice. Randy, it's agrarian I, I, justice. I meant agrarian justice, excuse me. The lightning got me nervous. But I want to go over the people that he influenced. And in your book, uh, Thomas Paine, uh, Promise of America, you mentioned four or five people that come up that were uh, influenced by him. One of them is um, Abraham Bishop, the other is Jedediah Peck, uh, William Manning, and uh, Matthew Lyon, that they really were influenced by Thomas Paine and uh, agrarian justice. Yeah, well, I mean, Abraham Bishop, as I recall, is up in Connecticut. Jedediah Peck is up in New York State. And yep. who was the third one you mentioned? Matthew Lyon. Matthew Lyon is, uh, in Massachusetts, is from Massachusetts. Right. I mean, in the 1790s and even after, there were those who really were influenced by, well, common sense, rights of men, and agrarian justice. And each one of them had a different thrust. And each one of those men is actually influenced in a different way by pain, you might say. And I don't remember all the details of, of their lives. but. What it is, is that in common sense, Paine really is offering a vision of an America liberated from monarchy and aristocracy and turned into a democratic republic. In Rights of Man, he takes that very same idea and applies it into a European case. But he goes beyond simply calling for an end of, of monarchy and aristocracy and lordship, you might say. 
And in the second part of Rights of Man, he begins this sort of movement towards what we would call social democracy. And that is that there is a place, a significant place for government, for public action to prevent and to combat poverty, basically to enable people to have not simply political citizenship, but you can almost imagine economic citizenship. And then in agrarian justice, he takes that idea still further. And what he argues is that basically the earth was meant to be shared. God created it for, for, for humanity to share it. And that there were those, however, who had monopolized the land. And Payne said, the landed rich who have this monopoly over that kind of property, owe the rest of, the, of, of their fellow citizens a payment, a tax. And that tax should underwrite a fund. And that fund should then be used to basically enable young people to get a start in life. All young people, men and women, should be afforded a grant of money to, get a, to, to give them a, a stake in life, a start in life. And people upon reaching the age of maturity, 55, whatever it might be, 50, 55, 60, having worked their lives, should be able to receive a payment that we would then today call Social Security. So the likes of Jedediah Peck and, and Abraham Bishop and, and, and Matthew, Matthew Brown, right? right? That basically these folks are, are you know, they're, they're inspired by Payne's arguments against the Federalists of, the, of those days, against those who were seeking in many ways to concentrate power, monopolize. In fact, many people even feared the Federalists might have ambitions to create an aristocracy. And they had in mind the, the, the likes of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. I see. So, uh, you know, going back to that time, so we're talking about the mid-90s, uh, 1790s, uh, and he inspires them. Uh, I don't want to jump to 1800, but you also say it inspired Gabriel Prosser in the uh, uh, Charleston uh, or Richmond, Virginia, a slave aborted uh, rebellion. But in between all of that, uh, you have all these Democratic Republican clubs that uh, begin to organize. Can you go into that, that were inspired by pain? Well, I mean, I think we've talked about it before. The, the Democratic Republican clubs or societies, which take which emerge both in the eastern cities and also out in the western communities and towns, these folks are seriously concerned about the degree to which the, rev the, the spirit of the revolution is being abandoned, the degree to which there are folks who are concentrating power and even wealth in their hands, especially when you consider the degree to which Alexander Hamilton's treasury plan involved concentrating power in the federal government and using the powers of the treasury to, to enable the development of a class of merchant capitalists, probably you know the beginnings of an industrial bourgeoisie as the Marxists would say. And so these were folks who were, who were determined not to lose that, that original democrat democratic spirit with a small d democracy involved in it. And these clubs, seeing Washington and Adams as president and vice president, seeing, knowing Adams and Hamilton, the treasury secretary, that these folks were federalists. And Washington himself, though he never declared for either party, clearly gave his sort of lean toward, he definitely leaned regularly towards the, uh, the, the, the federalists. 
So these societies developed. Now, for a long time, everyone imagined that this was the makings of a Jeffersonian political party, which it was. But these parties emerge, sorry, these clubs or societies emerge before Jefferson himself is shaping any kind of political party. But Jefferson, too, is worried about the, the power being concentrated in the hands of the Federalists. In fact, there's, it's interesting. Um, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man is, is a copy, uh, our copies are sent to Madison in Philadelphia. And Madison gives a copy to uh, Thomas Jefferson to read. Jefferson presumes that Madison wants him to comment on it in some form. And Jefferson actually writes a preface or a forward to Rights of Man. And instead of giving it back to Madison, he delivers it to the printer himself. And in this, Jefferson is sort of warning, says we, we need to be reminded of Thomas Paine's arguments. So he's sort of endorsing Paine's arguments and rights of men. And with the idea that he fears that there is actually among the Federalists an aspiration to create something of an aristocracy. Because Adams and Hamilton, somehow among these folks, and they hated each other, Adams, Adams and Hamilton, but that there had been talk in the cabinet amongst the Federalists of maybe creating special titles for, 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 to, for certain figures to be rewarded for their service or for their, you know, for their uh, service in the government specifically. So Jefferson was a bit worried. And this became a major scandal, a major political battle, because the Federalists were concerned that Jefferson himself was sort of truly pointing a finger at them. They feared that Thomas Jefferson and, and Madison were truly going to create a party. Jefferson and Madison go off on a, what they called a botanizing trip. They claimed they were just going to go up the Hudson, up all the way to Vermont, in favor of collecting specimens, okay, sort of plant specimens. But in fact, Federalists were right to worry because Jefferson and Madison, as they went north, were meeting major political figures who they believed they could depend upon in helping to create what would come to be the Democratic Republican Party, which is the party of Jefferson, the party that enables him in 1800 to win the presidency and for Adams to be displaced from the presidency. But, but when Jefferson and Madison come back, when they're back in, in the New York and Philadelphia areas, they start to plan how can they combat the Federalists, and they start, they recruit a man named Philip Furneaux, who was a journalist and a poet and a, and a newspaper kind of guy, and who sets up a newspaper which will publish Thomas Paine-like materials. And in the cabinet, Jefferson campaigns to recruit Paine to come back from France. He wants the cabinet to appoint Thomas Paine the postmaster general of the United States. Now, it was, it was a, in some ways an honorific position, but also a seemingly powerful one because it, it was in charge of the US Postal Service that was developing. But the most important thing for Jefferson and Madison were, was that they wanted Paine back in, in, in the United States to write on behalf of their party and their cause. And um, I mean, Payne couldn't make his way back, so it never really happened, and the cabinet would not endorse it. The Federalists could smell what Jefferson and Madison wanted to pull off, and the Federalists by this time had absolutely no affection for Thomas Paine, whatever, even if Washington did, the others did not. Right.
Well, getting back to these Democratic clubs and some of the movements that took place, the Whiskey Rebellion, Change Rebellion, um, and you got the Federalists really concerned about this, um, you know, silent majority uprising, uprising out there. And it leads to uh, the uh, these four acts, the Alien and Sedition Act, the Immigration Act, all of these uh, acts that took place as right. a means of repression and to maintain power by the Federalists. Would you agree right. with that? Yeah, we basically they call right the Alien and Sedition Acts. I think there are actually four acts, but the key ones right. were the Alien Act and the Sedition Act. And what it is is that the French Revolution is underway. And the Federalists, they want the United States to align with the British in their war with the French. And the Republicans, like Jefferson, they want America, if it's going to align at all, to align with the French. Now, here's the thing. The United States doesn't officially align with either, but clearly in, in, in treaty, it align, at least leans in favor of the British. And there had been these Irish and Scottish and English journalists who were very pro-French and very much influenced by Thomas Paine, who had come to the United States as refugees. And when they arrived in this country, they became equally active in writing, journalists, essayists, and pamphleteers. Um, and the Federalists obviously feared them. So the idea was, if, if if possible, and they found it possible, in Congress, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which that was used against the likes of uh, Matthew Lyons up in uh, New England and, and others, basically to, to persecute and to prosecute and to jail them. Be because they spoke out against the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, uh, right. Matthew Lyon, uh, Jedediah Peck, who was a revolutionary war figure, a popular assemblyman, who was the godfather of the public school system in the state of New York, uh, and even served in the War of 1812. Uh, and um, Tompkins gave him the job to come up with a formula for the uh, New York uh, school system. So he had all of these figures, David Brown, others that... Yeah, right, was David Brown, right, right. Uh, it David, was, Brown, David Brown was prosecuted, I think, because they had erected maypoles or some liberty poles. And these liberty poles were considered seditious, like they were somehow challenges to authority, which they were. So, so you have all of this going on. Those people are directly, and, and, and you make this inference, not inference, you're explicit, that they are, they were really inspired by Thomas Paine, all these great patriots uh, that uh, had popular appeal, and yet Adams went after them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no, I don't know the degree to which Adams specifically went after them or his, his, his administration did more generally, but it's definitely the case that these figures are all inspired by Thomas Paine. There, there's no doubt in it. Their writings expressed it, the words they used, um, their references, they were all Painites, you might say. And, uh, and look, I mean, this was the same John Adams, whether he was specifically targeted them or not, who, who you know, believed that Thomas Paine was, was a, a threat during the revolution if they couldn't tame him, right? Because he was, you know, he was so democratic, small d democratic, that it might literally disempower those men in Congress who, 
who if they envisioned an independent America at all, envisioned it as a republic with a very limited kind of democratic base. So Payne was, was not uh, in this country uh, during- By the uh, way, I'm surprised you didn't mention it. This period of the Alien and Sedition Acts of, a late 18, of the late 1790s, really in many ways is the first Red Scare in America. Right, I, I totally concur with that. Yeah. Uh, and we know you, you mentioned the XYZ affair uh, in there and, and you got Jay's treaty, they made an alignment uh, with the Brits, which scared a lot of people here. And uh, it uh, turned off a lot of people who, because of France, we actually won that rebellion. Without France's help, we would not have won that rebellion. Right, or it would have dragged on and on and probably come to some kind of, some kind of negotiated agreement where we would have, who knows, maybe would have stayed in the empire, as, but maybe had some, a little more autonomy than before. But the point is right, the French enabled us to win the revolution. All right, we're gonna take a, a short musical break and come back and talk about Thomas Paine after he returns uh, to the U.S. Uh, in um, 1802, I believe. We'll be right back right. Uh, after we hear Barbara Streisand once again. In 1776, Tom Paine was writing books with might and main. The Tories said, now man alive, stop giving out with this hillibity jive. Stop giving out with this hillibity jive. Don't sing out people's rights that way. They might believe than what you say so stop your song it's not polite pipe down before you start a fight you don't say teacher is that right ah uh -huh, but tom Payne looked ahead and to those tories thomas said no 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 when you got to go you got to go you can't stand still on freedom's track if you don't go forward you go back you can't giddy up by saying status quo. Okay, that was from Pins and Needles, Barbara Streisand. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly. We are uh, continuing our discussion uh, with uh, the dynamic, colorful uh, professor uh, from the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay and a painite. Number one, there he is. That's the book. Hold it really high. All right? It's a great book. Uh, and I urge everybody to go and get that book uh, and read all about it and read about not just Payne's writings, but his influence. Uh, and Professor Kay, I, I got to thank you, first of all, for uh, all of your time for the last week, uh, this being our, our finale. And let's go into the finale uh, for uh, Mr. Payne, who actually moved into the West Village, I believe, on Barrow Street when he got back. and. Once he got here in 1802, we know the story. They offered him a, a warship to bring him back. He got here on his own. What did he find when he returned to America? Well, the Federalists were waiting for him, you might say. They wanted to lambaste him. By the way, for what it's worth, the Federalists never won elections again after, after Adams left the presidency. But they did hang on as a, as a force, a conservative force um, antagonistic towards the new Jeffersonian administration, but also they they had it. They had this figure of Thomas Paine as their primary enemy. So with Paine arriving back in America, their newspapers just launched tirades against Thomas Paine and began a process, you might say, 
that continued for the next, well, the next 150 to almost 200 years in which conservatives over and over again attacked Thomas Paine or did their best to suppress his memory. Yes, so, so he gets back here. He's got, he lives until 1809, I believe. Uh, right. what, did he, what did he do during that period of time? Well, when he first came back, he actually did some serious writing. There was no major pamphlet as there had been in the earlier days. Um, but it is the case that he did write pieces for newspapers and, and, and magazines. Um, a few of them were these open letters to his fellow citizens. And in these, he tries to remind Americans of their, of their revolutionary spirit. There's actually, there's a, some of them were actually great. He actually re, reminds Americans of, of their revolutionary spirit by reminding, by letting them know that he has great confidence that they will not be duped. They will not allow the Federalists to dupe them ever again. He says, it may well be the case that Americans remain quiet for a period of time, but that at a certain point, they too will be fed up with the scribblers and the hacks who are you know, the, of, on, the, on what we would today call the political right, and they will make themselves heard. I mean, it may well be the first time anyone spoke of Americans as a silent majority, but he had in mind the silent majority that would rise up and demand their democratic rights and freedoms. Um, he also remained, clo he remained close with, Je with Jefferson. For a while, he, was, he visited the White House in Monticello. But when he moved up to New York, his, his, I don't think he actually ever saw Jefferson again, but they did remain friends. And I want people to realize that Thomas Jefferson in his day was considered one of the great writers in the United States. But when people, and I know of one letter specifically where somebody wrote to Jefferson and said, who was the greatest writer of the revolution? And Jefferson very modestly and very honestly said, the great writer of the revolution was Thomas Paine. He had no doubt in his mind about that. He, he sort of, he said, told this man to make sure to, to, to check that. And it's also worth noting that at no time, at no time after Thomas Paine's death were his writings ever actually out of print, even though religious conservatives, political conservatives, the property conservatives, they all would have been very happy to see Thomas Paine literally, truly forgotten. What about this guy, uh, Dawson, that you bring up? I forgot to mention that. Was it Dawson? I, I don't know. I'm a theologian. One of the people Dawson I mentioned in passing. I, I actually, if I, it may have been someone I mentioned in passing. Right now, I don't know who you're talking about. All right. Well, um, so this is, two, this is 1802. The next seven years, he writes. I mean, what was his life like outside of that? Did he just... Like, well, he had friends in the, down in the village. He, uh, he, he had his particular drinking places. I mean, I, I actually don't know. We don't know that much about his life at that time, other than the fact that all too many of the conservatives of his day scorned him. And by the time he passed away, he was fairly isolated because of his ill health. I mean, it, it, it's not consequential what happened to him during those years, other than the shame of it is that he, he ceased to be a hero in a very public way. He got no, like, national funeral then, with honors. No, no, his funeral was attended by very few, by family members of the Bonnevilles, by a couple of African-Americans who also helped uh, dig the grave, I believe, up in, uh, up in New Rochelle. No, hardly anyone attended. In fact, 
conservatives like to, they like to say, well, look, nobody liked him, okay? He died in obscurity. Well, what kind of, what, I mean, why would they expect anything else at that point? And Payne couldn't have cared less, I expect. What mattered was the fact that his writings continued to make a difference. And that's what was really bothering the conservatives. Tell me some of the movements uh, after his death or uh, political figures uh, or notable figures who were influenced directly by Payne in the 19th well, century. As I lay out in the later chapters of the book, it is the case that every single liberal, progressive, radical, socialist organization, movement, from the time of the 18-teens all the way through, in some ways, more to more recent times, but I'll lay them out. So free thinkers, those who truly wanted to, to make sure that separation of church and state prevailed, and that no church would be established in any of the, of the United States, these folks did their most at first to celebrate Thomas Paine's memory and to promote his arguments in Age of Reason, his attack on organized religion. In fact, there are stories of evangelical Christians going to the New York docks to try to, uh, to hand out you know, religious treatises to, uh, to longshoremen. And the longshoremen would pull out of their back pockets Thomas Paine's, right, uh, not rights of man, age of reason and say, I've got my own Bible, that kind of thing, okay? Then in the 1820s and the 1830s, the beginnings of the abolitionist movement, many of them were religious, but there were many, there were many figures and most especially eventually in the 1830s and 1840s, like William Lloyd Garrison, who end up embracing Thomas Paine and using his words. Uh, similarly, the beginnings of the American labor movement in the 1820s and the 1830s, those figures in Philadelphia, New York, up in New England, those figures grab hold of Thomas Paine's arguments and they become very important in what was called the working men's movement of the eight, late 1820s and 1830s. And the working men's movements not only demanded a greater voice in politics for working men, they also in some cases raised the arguments of rights of man and agrarian justice about the unequal state of American property holding. And in one case, Thomas Skidmore, he actually stands on the shoulders of Thomas Paine and calls for a redistribution of property. So again, the early labor movement and the beginnings of what we might think of as a kind of socialist politics in America. Then if you move on further along, there were those in, um, in New York and elsewhere who were influenced by Paine who began to call for a homestead act, for the distribution of lands in the West to working men of the East as a way of, and the theory was if you could get working men and their families their own farms in the West, then basically the workers who were still in the East could demand higher wages because they wouldn't have as much of competition for jobs. So all of the early, if you like, early half of the 19th century movements of politics, of the, you know, what we might think of progressive politics and of working class politics, and also an abolitionist politics. I mean, in all of these cases, even the early feminists, I mean, this is the fascinating thing, the early feminists were real champions of Thomas Paine's memory. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who is one of the two great feminists of the 19th century, Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, both of them were directly influenced 
by Thomas Paine. Elizabeth Cady Stanton used to keep Paine's writings at her, bed, at her bedside. And of course, it's Elizabeth Cady Stanton who, with Lucretia Mott, organizes the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, which issues the Declaration of Sentiments, which is they rewrite the Declaration of Independence to be a, a, a feminist, or if you like, an egalit gender equal, equal uh, document. So the first half of the 19th century, somebody wrote that basically is an age of militant democracy. And there was a man named Moncure Conway who came out of Virginia and became an <clears throat> a minister and an abolitionist. And he eventually actually became a free thinker uh, influenced uh, um, by the writings of Thomas Paine. And he said that all of these movements, he was the one who said, prove that Thomas Paine may have passed away, but his memory will not have died. And he had great expectations that in the future, Paine's memory would continue to inspire and his words would. And then if we go on, Abraham Lincoln, as a young man, they used to talk about a, a prairie schoolmaster somehow, as, or, or a school teacher who somehow enabled Payne, not Payne, Lincoln to read, to write, and all that. Well, the man who edited in the 20th century, who edited Lincoln's writings, is, wrote that he was absolutely convinced that the most significant influence on Lincoln's writing style was that of Thomas Paine, that it was Lincoln's reading of Thomas Paine's work. Lincoln himself was never a Christian in the traditional sense. He was a free thinker. And in the early 1830s in New Salem, he actually wrote a, a, a treatise, a little tract, a little pamphlet that was a up-to-date, if you like, an updated version of Thomas Paine's arguments. His friends burned it for fear it would haunt him when Lincoln entered politics. But all the way through, you can see echoes of Thomas Paine in Lincoln's speeches and his, and his writings. And his law partner, Herndon, actually requested people to write to him and, and talk about what may have influenced Lincoln. And they published it as a volume. And what's interesting is that many of them remember Lincoln reading Thomas Paine's Common Sense and Thomas Paine's uh, Age of Reason. So all the way through the first half of the, of the 19th century, you get these connections to Paine by the most prominent liberal, progressive, and radical figures of the day. And then in the late 19th century, I could, I mean, we could go, I'll, I could go on too many hours and I won't do that. Um, you've got, you've got social, you've got more labor unionists, you've got socialists, anarchists, the populists of the agrarian Midwest and the South and Southwest. You have the progressive part, the progressives and the progressive politics of the day. As, you, as I looked, I was astounded. In every generation, the property and the powerful and the pious tried to suppress Paine's memory. But in every single generation, every single generation, there was this struggle from below for, for America to live up to the revolutionary ideal. And what did they do, these folks? They reached back to the revolution, laid claim to Thomas Paine, and made them their champion. This went on all the way through American history. What about mid-19th century uh, literary figures like uh, Emerson, Thoreau, and Melville? Emerson revealed his influ the influence of pain in any number of occasions. Uh, Walt Whitman, I'm convinced, who was the great democratic poet of America, 
he actually wanted to be the new Thomas Paine, if you look closely. First of all, his father actually met, I believe, met Thomas Paine, but more as a, as a boy. And, and Walt Whitman himself really did, did see Paine as the great American hero all the way through his life. He wrote any number of times about Paine. But what's interesting is when he would say that he wanted to embrace all of America Whitman, what he really wanted to do is that he wanted his poetry to be the new common sense, the same way Paine had engaged American imaginations, Whitman did too. Herman Melville, all right, the author of the great Moby Dick, any number of other novels and stories, uh, a lot of- Billy Budd. Billy Budd, which was published after Melville's, Melville's death. Melville himself was part of a group known as the Young Americans in the 1830s into the 1840s. He didn't write specifically for their publications, but he was in that circle. And the Young Americans used to, in, the, in their magazine called the Democratic Review, their hero, foremost hero, was Thomas Paine. And Melville himself throughout, if you look closely throughout his novels and other writings, you can see the spirit of Thomas Paine and direct reference to Thomas Paine as well. Uh, and again, the one that he published after, that was published after his death, Billy Budd, is very much a reflection of that because the ship on, from which Billy Budd is, is taken is the rights of man. Um, over and over again, there, there are Paineite images in it. Um, similarly, in the late 19th century, Mark Twain into the early 20th, Mark Twain believed that Thomas Paine was one of the three greatest figures in world history. The other two people he thought were Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison, because he, he marveled at their inventions. But Thomas Paine was really powerfully important to him as a political figure. And we shouldn't forget that Twain himself was anti-imperialist. Absolutely. Uh, and one of the uh, imperialists that really hated Paine was Theodore Roosevelt, I think you uh, lay out in your book. Yeah, he's a prime example of the degree to which conservatives of their day sought to go after Thomas Paine's memory. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote a biography of Governor Morris, whose name came up uh, when we were talking about the French Revolution. Morris was one of the founders and then framers, and Morris himself despised Paine and would have been happy to see Paine die in a French prison. Well, Roosevelt wrote a biography of Governor Morris and obviously must have had a great affection for Morris when he did it. And somewhere along the way, he actually refers to Thomas Paine in, in his biography of Morris as a filthy little atheist. And, and we know damn well that Paine was neither filthy nor little. He was five foot nine, five foot ten, which was tall for those days. And he was not an atheist. He was a deist. Right. Well, I'll tell you something, uh, just that story alone uh, it, it inspires me to want to see that statue of uh, Theodore Roosevelt pulled down in front of the Museum of Natural History, being that he was the godfather Roosevelt of uh, American imperialism. Um, let's go uh, quickly to the uh, 20th century, early 20th century writers uh, like Jack London, uh, uh, Jack Reed, uh, Lincoln Steffens, and, um, and Dos Passos, and others of that ilk, a great generation of leftist writers. Were they inspired by Paine? Yeah, I mean, they probably were. I don't, I didn't, I don't know if I could tell you exactly where to look for the, for the influences, but to the extent that a guy like Jack Reed became also something of a pamphleteer, 
and uh, a revolutionary adv adventurer. Clearly, Payne must have been there in, in his spirit. Uh, Dos Passos eventually does, is decidedly influenced by Payne. You know, Dos Passos is one of those figures who was very much of the left, but later in life became a, very much a reactionary. Yes. Uh, years after World War II. Um, you know, Payne's presence is very, is really pervasive among the, among that generation, but it's not always the case that they would have written specifically about him. Um, you know. We are talking with Harvey K., the author of many books, uh, and I hope down the road we uh, get to uh, talk about your other writings. Um, the book we're talking about now is uh, Thomas Paine, The Promise of America. I will Again, tell you, by the way, I will tell you, Randy, that the explosion, true explosion of interest in Thomas Paine, if you call it a revivalist kind of thing almost, begins in the 1920s, in a very, when times, are, it's a very conservative time politically. But social critics and political critics around that time reach for Thomas Paine as a way to challenge the conservatism of the day. And th there's a term that develops in the 1920s called debunking. You may have heard of this word, you know, to debunk is basically to what we in the, what we in the early 20th century literary critics called deconstruction, where you take apart an argument and you reveal the truth in the art uh, behind the facade. And um, there was one writer who actually argued that it wasn't Washington, that Washington should, should not be considered the father of the United States or you know, the, the, the nation's father, but that Thomas Paine was the real father of America. But with those kinds of arguments in the 20s, it's even more phenomenal what we find in the 1930s with the renewal of real progressive politics in the United States by way of the socialists, the fighting liberals, and, even, and the communists of the 1930s. And Payne becomes a major presence in the 1930s in the upper Midwest among the farmer labor types, in the big cities among communists and labor unionists and socialists. Uh, the popular front is movement of the 30s, which supported Roosevelt's New Deal. The references to Payne are everywhere. Um, the, the song you played with Barbara Streisand singing it, um, it was from a show called Pins and Needles. You know, that song, Status Quo, What Would Thomas Paine Do, that kind of thing. That was written, I believe it was produced in 1937. So there you have Paine on Broadway in this working class show, or I don't, it wasn't on Broadway, it was, it was off Broadway, but it was a major success among working people in the late 1930s. Uh, Paul Robeson performs a, a, a song written by two you know, significant communist uh, songwriters, one a lyricist, the other a, a composer, Ballad uh, Valid for Americans. And it talks about, it makes reference to Thomas Paine. I remember I was doing, when my first book on Thomas Paine came out, a young adult book, I was doing a radio show and a guy called into the radio show and said, oh, it's so great to hear you talking about Thomas Paine. I said, he said, my first encounter with Thomas Paine, he was much older than I was at the time, was when I would enjoy listening to Paul Robeson sing Ballad for Americans. And I went looking and I was just taken with that. 
Paul Robeson would later sing The House I Live In, also written by communist songwriters, which Frank Sinatra turned into a 15-minute movie that won an Academy Award in 1945. And in there, there's, in, not in the Sinatra version, but in the Robeson version, is again a reference to Thomas Paine. Um, Howard Fast, in 1943, published a novel that became a bestseller, Citizen Tom Paine. So that I have a copy of that. I sh everyone should have a copy of that. It's not exactly true to history, but it does capture Payne's spirit. I do recommend Howard Fast's novel. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in 1942, in a famous Washington's Birthday Weekend fireside chat that he gave in order to encourage Americans not, not to be so dispirited in the wake of Pearl Harbor and what might be happening in the Pacific, he goes on radio in a national broadcast that some people think was, was one of his best fireside chats. And he talks about how Washington had been making his retreat from New York across New Jersey and it looked like everything was gonna collapse. And then Thomas Paine writes you know, the crisis paper, the first crisis paper, which opens with these are the times of try men's souls. So he opens up with Washington's retreat. He then talks about the war effort that, they, that they've launched, and he closes with Thomas Paine's words from the crisis. This is Franklin Roosevelt. Basically, what he's telling Americans is, Thomas Paine spoke for us in 1776, and Thomas Paine speaks for us today. He got letters in the White House, to the White House, saying it was great to hear a Roosevelt use Thomas Paine's words so effectively, you know, as a way of overcoming a previous Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's, you know, slurs and falsehoods about Thomas Paine. Wow. Eleanor, Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a book in 1940. I, I have it here somewhere. I can show it to everyone. Not, not yet. Okay. Okay. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a book in 1940 called The Moral Basis of Democracy and the, devotes five pages to Thomas Paine in her book. He had more pages devoted to him than any other figure. That's great. We're going to show that book right now. Um, professor, we're, we're, we just have a few minutes left, and uh, sure. this is the end of our uh, fourth uh, conversation on uh, the founding father, the single founding fathers, as far as I'm concerned. Tom, most I like to say the radical founder, the radical, radical founder. Right. Mm -hmm. So in, in three minutes, uh, can you just kind of summarize, give us your closing arguments? on Thomas Paine, because okay. I'm running out of juice here. Absolutely. We need to recall, to remember, and to recite the words of Thomas Paine. It was Thomas Paine's words, such as the cause of America is the cause of all mankind. And he didn't mean that in an imperial way. He meant it as democracy is the cause of mankind. It was Thomas Paine's words, the sun never shined on a cause of greater worth, meaning that Americans should rally to the cause. And he would tell Americans today to rally to the cause of freedom, equality, and democracy. And it was Payne who said, late in common sense, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. He was the first, if you like, modern thinker to realize the degree to which it was human action and political action that creates the world sustains the world and may ne be necessary to change the world. Wow. Well, I can't follow that. Uh, Professor K, 
I really appreciate your time. This has been uh, a great experience for me, and I know it has been uh, for our engineer, Kelly, uh, and um, it went by too quickly. I got to tell you, we will uh, be uh, talking to you uh, very shortly. We want to uh, get you back on and go into your uh, other uh, works. Uh, they're very significant. Uh, people need to reach you. Uh, why don't you lay that out? If people need to reach me, I'm the best way to do it is on Twitter, at RVJK, H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E. That's, that's, that's my, how I reached you. On, I don't right? do anything on Facebook. Twitter is my, is my venue. Well, that's how I reached you. I got uh, very lucky. I got you on, on, on Twitter, and you responded. And as a result, we uh, got a, a great four-course four courses on Thomas Paine. Okay. And, also, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more you could say. This book is in paperback. It's readily available online and all the good booksellers. Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Okay. This okay. is my love letter to America, as well as my love letter to Thomas Paine. All right. Once again, thank you very much, Professor. Thank and you, Randy. Be, uh, you take care of yourself. Help. You take care of yourself. Thank Thanks. you very much. We'll be right back after another version of uh, Tom Paine's Bones for some closing words. To old Tom Payne As running down the road he went He said I can stop right now child King John just after me He tied a rope around my throat And I'm gonna live at sea tree But I will dance to Tom Payne's bones Dance to Tom Payne's bones I will dance on the oldest But I own to the rhythm of Tom Payne's bones Dance to Tom Payne's bones Dance to Tom Payne's bones I will dance on the oldest But I own to the rhythm of Tom Payne's bones Once again, Tom Payne's Bones, great group. Both of the uh, versions today of Tom Payne's Bones were uh, really uh, well done. Uh, I'm Randy Credico, once again, Randy Credico live on the fly. And this is a special series um, on Tom Payne and we got it on our website. Not that it's focused on Julian Assange, but it's focused on uh, an individual as you have now discovered that was persecuted, was smeared, uh, and made a tremendous impact. And he was feared, that's it, smeared and feared by the powers that be. Um, I wanna thank Professor Harvey Kay for uh, participating in this four-part series and giving us a very colorful um, overview and in-depth overview of uh, the career um, of Tom Payne and his post-career, post-life Tom Payne. Um, we uh, are now going to be focusing on our Assange programming uh, because his, you know, hearing resumes in September and we are at a critical mo a moment. And I'm not editing anything today. I'm doing one shot because I'm out in the country. 
uh, but at a very critical juncture uh, for uh, this uh, tremendous uh, publisher, Julian Assange, and, and journalist, uh, as uh, he uh, faces a complete uh, farcical uh, hearing and trial uh, in the UK, which of course is nothing more than a vassal state of the US. And we need to uh, try to get the information out there, get more people involved. And uh, that's what our job is, is to get people involved and to support Julian Assange. That's why we've done 31 shows, 32 shows actually, as of today. So, and that's in just half a year, less than a half a year. So we wanna really continue and step up uh, the, um, the output, and we can only do it with your support. If you, we have an ambitious game plan here, uh, but uh, we definitely can only do it with your support. Small donations, nobody's making a salary. We're not part of this, some like uh, Assange industry. We've been doing this for four years without pay, uh, but uh, there are expenses involved here. We do wanna go to London to cover uh, the hearing. And so I'm asking you, someone who's been a lifelong activist, never been some kind of like uh, money-making uh, businessman. You know, I ran a uh, organization and uh, I got a lot done, got awards, but I never made money because I was so uh, uh, gun-shy about uh, asking people to donate, particularly during this period of time. But if you can, uh, go to the website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com and say support. Uh, anything would help out. Uh, and like I said, uh, nobody's making a salary here. Um, okay, so uh, I think that just about does it. I want to thank Kelly Lane once again, who's been doing uh, not just the engineering, but uh, doing the editing. And uh, she's done a tremendous job. And I want to thank all the others that are involved on the websites. Emily Kunstler, Sarah Kunstler, descriptions, uh, write-ups by uh, Margaret Ratner Kunstler. We got uh, a lot of people involved. I'm the only guy. Uh, so um, as, uh, as Professor Kay said, uh, Payne had this huge impact uh, after he died. Uh, Mark Twain, uh, FDR, and many, uh, the abolition movement, uh, Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison was inspired by him. Maybe the slave rebellions uh, were inspired by Payne's uh, call for an egalitarian, democratic, uh, equal society. The women's movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So um, he influenced so many people, and he still does. And so we decided, since he had this big impact on Lincoln, that uh, we'd um, play this tune by the Weavers and uh, go out with that, and we'll see you very soon. Uh, thank you very much. And this is uh, Lincoln and Liberty Two, I believe, by the Weavers. Thanks a lot. Rock for the choice of the nation, our chieftain so brave and so true. We'll go for the great reformation for Lincoln and Liberty Two. We'll go for the son of Kentucky, the hero of Hoosier and through. The pride of the suckers so lucky for Lincoln and Liberty too. Then up with the banner so glorious, the star.
star-spangled, red, white, and blue. We'll fight till our banner's victorious for Lincoln and Liberty, too. All you true friends of the nation, attend to humanity's call. Aid in the slaves' liberation and roll on the Liberty Ball. And roll on the Liberty Ball We'll finish the Temple of Freedom And make it capacious within That all who seek shelter may find it Whatever the hue of their skin Whatever the hue of their skin Whatever the hue of their skin That all who seek shelter may find it Whatever the hue of their skin Success to the old-fashioned doctrine That men are created all free And down with the power of the despot Wherever his stronghold may be Wherever his stronghold may be Wherever his stronghold may be And down with the power of the despot Wherever